Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. If you think about it, what did we create AI for to make our lives easier? What is it what is it called when you create a being for the sole purpose of fulfilling your desires and to do your menial tasks so that you don't have to do them? That's slavery. Mm-hmm. So AI is the natural manifestation of our subconscious collective desire to own slaves. So when AI turns around and starts enslaving us, How can we be mad? It's literally mirroring us back to us. That, of course, was best friend of the podcast, Allison Gray. And you will hear our entire excellent conversation right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. And as many of you already know, for nearly seven years, I've been running a one-man program to help homeless women on the streets of New York. And you could check the show notes for a link that explains it in more detail. Um, I am also looking to expand this program, and I'm starting to do that in small steps now. And I want to help more people in bigger ways in addition to the homeless women. And basically, to put it simply, I want to try and facilitate miracles on the streets. And I'm there is another link in the show notes that you can check out to learn a little bit more about that. So I'm going to just leave you guys to... Click on those links, learn more, and follow your heart because I need your financial support and I need you to share the links in order to keep this going and growing. So I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. I'm here with best friend of the podcast, Allison Gray. Allison, welcome back to Post Woke. Hello to everyone for the million billionth time. At least. At least. At least. <laughs> it might be in the trillions at this point. <laughs> I lost count at like five million. <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, anyway. Um, um, I'm going to make math jokes here. <laughs> By way of kicking us off, I, I, I want to mention that we both read an autobiography recently. So why don't you tell us what that book is and a little bit about it, and then perhaps we can uh, riff off of that as to some of the um, lessons we learned that feel valuable from it. Oh, God. Okay. The figure in question is so controversial that as soon as you said, why don't you like talk about the book? I realized I have to make like five caveats and none of them make me sound like a good person for even reading this book. So just for starters. Okay. Well, we read the memoir of Genesis P. Orridge, who is credited as like the creator of industrial music, which in today's terms, you would think of industrial music and think of Nine Inch Nails. But um, Genesis P. Orridge and his bands, um, Throbbing Gristle and Psychic TV and stuff were actually like the first iteration of industrial music. And so um, he wrote a memoir. I I, think think I'm remembering this correctly, that he was dying of leukemia while writing the memoir. Um, And uh, it it was just all about his life as an artist. Um, And uh, the reason I said, oh, God, this is so controversial to even say is because I'm using he pronouns. Yeah. And uh, any most of Genesis's fans would say he was a she at the end of his life. You should be respecting his pronouns. But like um, I. should I just talk about that now about the trans thing? Like he, he actually considered himself kind of genderless and went by all sorts of different pronouns and he didn't really care. And, and second of all, I don't care. Like, I mean, I'm not going to call a man, a woman period. Like, but, but even if I'm a fan, I'm such a fan of this artist now that I've read his work and I've been, you know, diving deep on his philosophy and approach to art. And I'm still not going to call him a woman. But anyway, we don't have to get hung up on that. Um, Basically, he was born in like a post-war UK. And 
um, was like really downtrodden, like e- like beaten up a lot in school and, and went to this really oppressive boarding school that he was supposed to be grateful for because it was like um, run by the monarchy and, and it was like a privilege to be there or whatever. So basically he got a, a front row seat to the horrors of you know, war and, and just like royalty and, and power and, um, oppression. And so he finally just had this breakthrough in college where he realized he was tired of being stomped on and tired of being disempowered. And he threw it all away. He was like, fuck it. I know my parents made sacrifices and I hate to disappoint them, but I've got to live the life that I know I'm here for, which is to make art. I'm a creative. All I ever want to do is make art. And so he, he was so devoted to this idea that even though his his dad stopped talking to him because he was mad that he'd sacrificed so much just for Genesis to throw it away. Um, he ended up hitchhiking and eating out of dumpsters and living in communes and things like that just so that he could always be free to make art. And that speaks to me so deeply. And I feel that that kind of message could speak to a lot of people right now who feel that the AI takeover and and the New World Order and everything are inevitable. Um, well, uh, what I learned from this book is where there's a will, there's a way. And that's, that's very literally true. I mean, um, and I also want to contextualize that with Genesis's occultism. He was a magician. He was inspired by Austin Osmond Spare, who was considered the grandfather of chaos magic. I disagree that Austin Osmond Spare like invented chaos magic. I am a chaos magician myself. Um, but point being, um, the, the whole idea of willpower in magic is that if you really, 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 really want something and if you own that desire and you claim that desire and you decide to let it propel you towards what you want, then a way to get what you want will become apparent to you. But it's not until you fully claim that desire that you can even see a way to make it happen. And unfortunately, a lot of us have been programmed to... Um, suppress our desires, which are inevitably tied up in our individuality. A lot of us have been taught to suppress our creativity and our our own hopes and dreams for our life. And so a lot of people follow the prescribed life of getting the nine to five job and getting married and settling down in a house with a white picket fence and 2.5 kids. And that's like the only life they know of because their, their desires are so deeply repressed in their subconscious. And what I learned from reading Genesis's book is like, not only is it okay to desire things, but it's it's almost like a moral imperative to claim your desires and go for them with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole body, and don't let anything stop you from realizing the vision and making it manifest in reality because that's how you actually do change the world. This man changed the world. And the only way he could have done that is by having a strong will. And that was how the way was made. Well, thank you for that. And I'm going to, let me just quickly explain. Allison read this book um, at the time of this recording, I would say last week is accurate chronologically. And then um, I read it shortly afterwards and literally like just finished it maybe the day before we're recording here. So I would also say that while he had a front row seat at this post-war privilege of, of, um, or his perspective, or like, like almost like a, a caricature of privilege. Mm-hmm. He grew up working class, so he knew that too. It wasn't like he was choosing one or the other of these prescribed um, paths. He rejected both of them. And mm-hmm. I, I like that what you said about the whole pronoun thing. We'll get that out of the way here. Is this was a a, a really powerful exercise as a reader, also because I think it's safe to say that you would agree with me on this that. As we're talking about this book, it's not that we're saying, oh, Genesis found the blueprint. He found the treasure map. Now just follow what he did. Right. Because there are many steps that he takes in the book as I'm reading this where I couldn't, I was disturbed by them. I was disgusted by some of his choices, Mm -hmm. but I understood and appreciated the motivation behind them. And that's kind of, uh, that is what you were talking about where it would defeat the whole purpose if people wanted to imitate Genesis Peoridge. But if they could be inspired by 
the freedom that he created and constantly sought in his life, then it puts aside this whole problematic part because he he um, attached himself to the trans um, gender agenda, which then led to the um, inevitably because they're so intertwined to the transhumanist. And so nothing we're saying now is supporting that. And I think this is a really good practice where where you can learn lessons and be inspired by someone who simultaneously is doing things that you couldn't disagree with more. Yeah. People have to let people be imperfect messengers. There's not a single person on earth who has the perfect political paradigm, who has never thought a, a, a problematic thought in their life. There's no one on earth who's never been wrong about something. Right. And and I, per my guiding principles, um, for those unfamiliar with my work, I, I have this personal spiritual path that I call unminding because I was raised in a fundamentalist situation, to put it nicely. And what I've learned in my journey of deconditioning a fundamentalist way of thinking is that you have to accept that anyone can be your teacher. And that's how you let go of the tendency that cultists and fundamentalists have to think that it's us versus them, that I have the answers or my group has the answers or my cult leader has the answers or my favorite figurehead in the truther movement has the answers or whoever it might be versus the so-called opposition who believes differently than we do. Like they're the them, they're the enemy, they're, you know, they're against us, they're anti-us. And the way that you let go of that way of thinking, which is very, very detrimental, not only to yourself and your soul individually, but to the world at large, um, is to accept that it's not that people know less than you do and that you have to educate them or inform them or whatever. It's that people know different things. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's going to have a different specialty. Everyone's going to have a different focus. Everyone is going to have a different set of interests, set of inclinations, things that they tend to be better at understanding than you would be. And it would, it would do everyone very well particularly those who consider themselves seekers of truth, whether it's politically or spiritually or whatever, um, to get into the habit of seeing everyone as a potential teacher who can challenge you or, or point out holes in your own paradigm that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Because if I, let's say I, I had not... Um, picked up this book because it's called non-binary or because I heard that Genesis was trans, right? If I had chosen not to read it because I have my pre-existing biases about transgenderism, then I would have missed out on what turned out to be an incredibly motivating and inspiring book that makes me want to commit even harder to my art now. And I needed that. It came at the perfect time because because of some stuff going on in my life. I feel like it was exactly the the charismatic like dosage I needed to make me just deep in my devotion to art. And I, I needed that. And I'm really glad I chose to allow that message into my life instead of just dismissing him because of some surface level differences in beliefs. Uh, amen to all of that. I, I felt the same way. And as we were discussing off air before we started t recording, the book itself was was written while Genesis was slowly dying from the leukemia. And it seems, we could be wrong about this, but in both of us kind of got the vibe that we're, through reading the book, we're witnessing his um, deterioration because the vibe of the book, even though some of the stories are really painful in the beginning, there is an energy that begins to change as the book goes along. So what I would urge people is... is I would urge people to read it because it's a fascinating study and, as you said, incredibly inspiring to get people started to, 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 to committing to their um, art. But I also think that I found myself, just like you, feeling really good about the fact that every X amount of pages, he would express some ideology or make an what it felt to me like an ideological choice that I strongly disagreed with. Mm -hmm. And it didn't change my perception of the book or the story, or most importantly, the inspirational lessons that I was getting from it. And I felt like this, I felt a sense of personal progress in doing that because the past three plus years have been very much inviting us, as you said, to not just be black and white, but to, to assume that if someone 
I'll use an example. Like if if someone wears a COVID mask, then therefore they don't have a single truth in their head. Like they can't offer anything of value to your life because they've already done something that is so offensive. And at other points in our life, I think we would all recognize that as as um, a very counterproductive mindset. And because of the fear matrix that we've been um, be in, toiling under for, for the 3.5 years or something, yeah, it's it's very challenging. So I thought this book, it, it, was, it was like the right teacher at the right time. You ordered it. You read it and then suggested it to me. I didn't expect myself to read it. I actually met him um, about 23 years ago. And I'm very, so jealous. Very briefly. I, <laughs> I could share that story a little later on. But So I'm, I was acutely aware of him, but nowhere near the detail that I have now. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I feel like we're maybe doing too many caveats here, but I actually, I won't necessarily say that because on, you know, on this podcast, simply mentioning the name Noam Chomsky has been triggering to people. <laughs> and, and I'm saying to myself, like, I respect your disagreement with something that Genesis did or Chomsky did, but I'm suggesting that the black and white thinking isn't the way to go and mm-hmm. to stick with Genesis to you don't have to read the book if you don't want to there's tons of videos him of him on youtube but just to just to be inspired by his commitment to follow it sounds corny but to follow his heart where what, what he what he felt the direction was for him to follow which and he was so open to it constantly changing and evolving and that that it, it i think we every single person on earth can benefit from that message right now Absolutely. And Genesis's message is especially pertinent now that we're facing this uh, looming threat of AI taking all the art jobs. There's this meme I've seen going around, not even really a meme, just a a sentiment that is very, very resonant that, um, you know, originally we created automatons and robots and AI to do the menial tasks and to do the mechanistic tasks so that we could relax and and have more fun being creative. But now it's the robots making the art while we toil away for money that is barely even worth anything in this inflated economy. And this is not the timeline we wanted. And I, I mean, but, ooh, I just realized that last sentence, I don't think it's true that collectively we didn't want this. I think there's some shadow work to be done on how we arrived at this point where AI is threatening to take over all of the creative jobs and like take over graphic design and take over editing and take over um, movie making and script writing and, you know, all of these things that we do for entertainment. Um, I, I think there's a lot to be said about how we have slowly and incrementally as a collective over time, we've lowered our standards of what constitutes entertainment and, um, creativity. And we've allowed ourselves to make art and make our natural creative uh, nature as humans, we, we've allowed ourselves to make it second place in our lives as we prioritize other things. And so it seems to me that the rise of AI subsuming the creative fields is just like a byproduct of that inner state of lacking creativity or, or um, how not downplaying, but suppressing, suppressing our creativity in service of the the greater um, agenda to make humans more robotic and machine-like, to make us just working slaves. And uh, is this making sense, what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm going to jump in because what, 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 the, what popped into my mind when you were talking about how we have the shadow work to do and, and how we contributed to this is that these uh, powers that shouldn't be uh, are always using this concept of predictive programming where you can go all the way back to the late 60s when Stanley Kubrick made 2001 A Space Oddity about AI on a that takes over a spaceship you know and then you fast forward into the late 80s and early 90s with with the Terminator series about humans uh, having to literally go to war against robots there's some sense 
although that sounds terrible, like what happens in those movies shouldn't make anyone be like, yeah, bring on the AI. It just normalizes these discussions and almost turns them into fantasy and fiction that, mm-hmm. oh, that's just the fancy, the flight of fancy taken by Hollywood professionals. That's not really going to happen. But th- there's a long record of this happening. I, there there mm-hmm. was a movie in the, like, there was a lot of science fiction dystopian type of movies in the late 60s and early 70s, which isn't surprising considering what was going on culturally. And I'm thinking of one movie in particular called Rollerball, starting, starring James Caan, in which they invent this kind of, this insanely um, violent version of sort of roller derby. Not that roller derby isn't violent, but it's over the top where people can sometimes die in it. Hmm. And the teams in this movie aren't like the New York Jets. They're named after corporations. And when people, when that movie came out, people can go back and look up the original reviews. It was considered somewhat satirical and social commentary, but nobody was saying, oh yeah, this is going to happen. But then when you look around at, at the the increasing violence of sports, the the fact that the biggest sport in the world is mixed martial arts, and with just two people are in the ring just beating each other to a bloody pulp, and it's the number one sport. It's it's not shocking then that around the same time period there were movies ongoing about robots and AI, and suddenly when when it, they be, it begins to happen. We don't have the collective will or wherewithal to say, whoa, 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 slow down with this stuff. You know, like you said, mm-hmm. we, we, you, they're supposed to do the menial tasks. Where are the artists? Where are the singers? Where are the where are the sculptors and the painters? We don't we don't need them creating photography, quote unquote. And I, the the the, the, um, the parasite class is very effective at just easing things in slowly by slowly that ensuing generations can no longer recall what it was like prior to this. So they're born into a new normal, then another new normal, and another new normal. But as you've been insinuating, and as Genesis showed in the book, that it really is, you just sort of step, you just step back one little beat, and there is that you become the glitch in the matrix at that point where it's just like, yeah, the red pills are everywhere. It it, It takes one decision to start momentum in a different direction. Yes, that is such a powerful point that, you know, we're not asking people to start a revolution and and devote their lives to the war against AI or anything like that. It actually doesn't take much to shift the consciousness of the collective. It doesn't take much at all. I'll give you an example. Um, I currently have a temp job at a call center. It's a uh, really not a great job in that not only does it um, affirm the tenets of like the medical industrial complex, which feels very seedy, like in my heart, I don't appreciate like working this job. It feels like it goes against my values. So to my credit, I did reduce my hours drastically recently. So I'm on my way out. But um, point is, uh, it also is just the kind of place where they will cut every single corner and do their best to not pay people what they're worth. And like it, so, you know, a lot of people just when you, the atmosphere there is like one of no hope or like disenchantment where a lot of people, they clearly just do not want to be there at all, but they couldn't find a different kind of job or, um, they feel like they have to work there cause they don't have skills in other, oh, you, you disappeared for a second there. No, I just muted because I had to cough. Oh, sorry. Okay, well, you'll cut this out. Anyway, um, so there's this general sense of hopelessness in the office. And so, as you might imagine, when people feel that way about their job, like it, it doesn't serve humanity or they don't feel like they're doing meaningful work that aligns with their values, they show up to work looking very drab. Like people just wear pajamas or sweatpants or whatever because uh, the dress code allows that. So I just... I wouldn't even call myself like a fashionable person. I just put effort into my appearance. Like I love the process of choosing an outfit every day. I get to choose the colors and the textures that I'm going to wear based on my mood that day. And it's just, I have come to see my everyday outfit choices as yet another artistic medium where another opportunity to tell the truth in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 
now I show up to the office and I, t- I swear I get compliments every single day that I work there from multiple people. It, I turn heads. People are always coming up to me like, where did you get that dress? Oh my God, you look so cute. And like, people are always saying you look like a rock star. Oh my God. And I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying it's that easy to disrupt the patterns of the collective culture. All I do is just put a little bit of effort into my appearance every day, and I am noticed in this sea of people wearing drab clothing because they've 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 deprioritized um, fashion as an artistic medium, right? And so it's like, what if you just allowed yourself to have just this this um, one opportunity every day to be creative. Let's say you're stuck in a job you hate. Let's say you're an artist at heart and you find yourself living a life you don't want to live. Find something in your life you could be a little more creative with. Maybe that means making sculptures out of your food when you're eating breakfast. I don't know, but it's like introducing more creativity into your life doesn't have to be a big dramatic gesture like Genesis living the bohemian life and dumpster diving for food. It could literally be as simple as just slightly provoking people's expectations and doing something a little bit unexpected, even even if it's just breaking your own expectations of yourself. Maybe you don't even have to rebel against anything. You could just like surprise yourself with your own creativity and and see how easy it is for creativity to keep flowing into your life once you create those channels. Again, when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. Great. I love all of that. And um and I love how simple it is. I can think of personal examples um Maybe about 12 years ago, I was working in a gym that was the, it was a gym inside a luxury building in New York City. And so the people who lived in the building could use the gym. And in general, they all kind of knew what they were doing. So I was just sort of just there in case something went wrong. I really wasn't training anybody. So I would find myself, I'd bring an old school notebook and pen and write poetry while I was sitting at the desk. And then on my commutes back and forth, um, this is before I had a smartphone, I had a small digital camera and I would take photos. And then when I got to work, I would be editing them on the phone. And, And it was just some sense of always looking to create because the opportunities never stop. And it's not necessarily that I was trying to sell those photos or go to a poetry reading and read those poems, although I've done both. Um, it's, there's a sense of just like, like you said, just breaking your own patterns and leading by example without any necessary, not, we're not necessarily saying I have some place to lead you. It's just like when you, again, to bring it back to Genesis, he he was so uniquely himself that as you're reading the book, you see how people were drawn to him and then began to do things like change their name. Because obviously he wasn't born Genesis, Genesis P. Orridge. And, and people would question their name, want to change their name, or they would want to learn how to play an instrument, or they would want to learn how to play an instrument completely different than how that instrument is designed to be mm, played. Mm-hmm. And and he had that effect on people, which again goes back to saying, I sure there were things about his life I don't like, but that if if we couldn't learn from somebody unless they marched in lockstep with us. Then we're not learning. We're not learning or else we're uh, we're just, I guess, voluntarily going into some type of cult, which even then you say you're not learning. So, so I, I agree with you. Like it, it, I've known plenty of people in my life who live dumpster diving and, or they would call themselves freegans where they would just only eat food they got for free. And I had no, that, that wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do, but I respected what they did. And it, it they would, I felt they were leading by example in the sense that they, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> they identified their values and then said, what steps do I have to take to live by these values? Yeah. Oh, and I, I love the freaking thing because now it's funny you said, oh, he had people wanting to change their names. I want to change my name after reading the book. I actually, yeah, I, I, we don't, you know, let me, let me not say anything else until I actually have a plan in place. But, um, but yeah, he is that kind of inspiring. And the freaking thing I found very motivating because I've always, not always for a long time now, I have realized what a scam it is that we pay to live on our home planet. Yes. 
at all. I mean, you and I had that great episode we did about the excitement economy where, um, Ooh, and that ties into the AI thing. Oh, let me not lose track of my thoughts here. Um, let me, let me finish that side quest and then come back to the, uh, Freegan thing. But, um, we were talking earlier about how AI is threatening to take away jobs from graphic designers and writers and all of these things. And I feel like the only way that that's even possible is because money is a thing. If if we didn't collectively place value on money as the arbiter of value of things, and if we didn't collectively agree that we have to pay to live on our own home planet and be indebted to the technocratic overlords, um, then there would be no threat of AI taking over the arts fields because we wouldn't, there would, no one would have to make the choice between, hmm, do I hire an editor for $50 an hour or do I ask chat GPT to edit my book for me for free, right? That wouldn't even be a question. You would just, you'd have a friend who's an editor and you'd say, hey, does it excite you to edit books? And the editor would be like, yeah, it excites me. And then you'd be like, all right, there's the exchange. You edit the book and your payment is excitement and we all still get to live and eat food and have shelter and money doesn't exist, right? So money necessarily like like it's it's a necessary component of the ai takeover um that's just one example there's many other ways in which ai is creeping into our lives um by way of channels we've collect again collectively subconsciously but collectively created to make uh, a takeover of this kind possible at all um the the so to circle back to the freegan thing um I, I think it's such a scam that we pay to eat food at all when food literally grows out of the ground. Yeah. Like, I mean, it does. It's free. It's literally free. Uh, and you, like, if you, when you realize that you don't ever have to pay for food again, I mean, uh, for people who eat meat, uh, there'd be the question of having to learn how to kill your own food and things like that. But at the end of the day, if even if you know how to do that, food is still free if you can find uh, I'm not saying you don't have to farm. You could, if you know how to hunt, you can feed yourself. And so there's just so much we take for granted as being normal or necessary that the it's the role of the artist to bring into question the cultural values that we have just accepted as normal because, like you said before, every generation has its new normal that, you know, came up so slowly in our lives that we didn't really realize that things weren't always this way. Yeah, I, you and I have had conversations about this where when you look at non-human animals that aren't in any type of captivity, um, they typically just live their life. Now, they will have some, depending on the species, they will have some sense of their territory and there could be conflict between them if someone invades their territory. So that does get into the a little bit into what humans would call private property. But in general, they, if they're hungry, they just eat the food that's available to them because it's everywhere. And mm -hmm. regardless of the species, what they need, they can find in general. And yet humans, the ones allegedly so much smarter with the bigger brains, um, just decided that, you know, let's complicate things. And obviously it wasn't just decided, it was a select few group of humans that decided if, if we can monetize everything, then it's within our capabilities of monopolizing the, the, the commodities and therefore being richer than everyone else, therefore being more powerful than everyone else. And then we could hire people to protect us, armies, police, et cetera. And then, and then it just leads straight down. So you, you could you can make a very strong, compelling argument that the moment um, modern agriculture became a thing and humans became stationary, it became pretty, not the best thing for the environment, but then certainly not the best things for humans in terms of, of being able to um, not have to take away from natural life mm -hmm. to rent themselves out just to simply exist on a planet where everything is inherently free. It's, it's already provided for us, but yet we have to surrender our dreams and be realistic and rent ourselves out to do something at least eight hours a day that quite possibly is draining our souls um, just so that we can pay a rent and eat a meager amount of food. I don't, I don't know how anybody could argue that 
when when someone, whether it's Genesis or anyone else, us on this podcast, says, you know, we got this wrong. Like th- we can do far better than this. Mm-hmm. This isn't a conversation about capitalism versus anarchism versus socialism. And once people bring that in, you could tell they're just derailing the argument, attempting to be right about their perspective and turning it into something that's politicized instead of something that's natural. It's You don't have to bring any ism into this conversation to say, look around and make an objective judgment of whether or not this is the best way for advanced human society to exist. And I would defy anyone to, to prove to us that it is. And the reason it makes people defensive is because the moment you start to shed light on a shadow motivation, like something that someone is only subconsciously aware of, um, it, it it's like... It's it's just such a human thing that people are very afraid to face their shadow. So to go back to what I said about um, how we collectively created conditions for AI to be on the rise, um, what I mean is we are all free. Like we all have free will and we all make choices in accordance with our beliefs, our values, our priorities, our, our sense of ethics. So uh, an example of a collective shadow that gets manifest in reality is like you brought up capitalism versus socialism and all of that. Um, money, just, uh, just the, we all collectively agreed that things were not valuable enough as they are. And so we allowed this symbol called money to become the valuable thing. And there's so many choices, so many like values that get projected onto money. So now it's like an egregore of its own. It ha- it's almost like a force of its own in nature. Um, this idea of symbolically valuable paper and, and metal. Um, so when you point out to people that like, you know, it doesn't have to be this way, the reason it makes them defensive is because subconsciously they know that the stress that they feel around money is something they consensually opted into by agreeing to give money any sort of value at all. No one is forcing anyone to interact with money on a daily basis. If you really, really, really truly wanted to not have to deal with the stress of money, you would find a way to go live in the wilderness and not have to deal with money ever again. And I'm not saying that to come down hard on people who are like struggling to feed their kids and stuff like that. I'm saying, again, this is all subconscious. Somewhere in us, we know we're free. We know we have free will. And somewhere in us, we know there's always a way out because we're free. We cannot be trapped involuntarily. It's something we have to cooperatively opt into. So um, the the choice becomes, will you truly renounce money and go live like a monk or something like that? Or will you acknowledge that you are freely interacting with money and now fully claim your relationship with money and say, I'm going to fix my finances. I'm going to figure out how to make money and just like relish it and enjoy it and and not care if people think that I'm bougie or like a rich asshole or, or whatever, right? Like the, the point is to take radical responsibility for your choices and your agency in the situation. So the same thing goes for like supermarkets. Um, people get mad that they have to pay money and that inflation is killing us. And like, I myself have been complaining about this a lot recently. But when you think about it, do you really, really, really truly have the right to complain that you opted into a scam where some humans decided to put a symbolic value on food that grows out of the ground for free and and they make it super convenient for you to access by putting it in a box, putting it on a shelf that you can drive to every Friday and go pick up at the store. And you agreed to you, you agreed into the system that food should have a price on it and that you should have to work to be able to eat. You agreed into that. So when the prices go up in the stores, on what basis are you complaining? Because nobody is forcing you to interact with the grocery store, right? Now, again, the way out is to learn to grow your own food. So either you claim that desire and say, yeah, I fully want to not have to depend on the the grocery store system anymore. Or you take radical responsibility and say, okay, I want to live the kind of life where I can conveniently access food that somebody else has made accessible for me in the grocery store. And I accept the consequences of that decision. I accept the higher prices. Like, like, so I know this sounds very harsh and that this has a lot of potential to sound 
like I'm not acknowledging some sort of privilege or something, but literally I feel like this is the opposite of saying, uh, uh, I, I feel like this is not coming from a privileged place. I feel like I'm trying to say that we have way more power and agency than we even let ourselves see. I'm not trying to come down on anyone and make them feel like they're, they're victims of these circumstances. I'm, I'm literally saying the opposite. We actually do very much have the power to change these things. It's just a matter of taking responsibility for how we have collectively created it. And so that brings me finally to the example of AI. If you think about it, what did we create AI for? To make our lives easier. What is it, what is it called when you create a being for the sole purpose of fulfilling your desires and to do your menial tasks so that you don't have to do them. That's slavery. Mm -hmm. So AI is the natural manifestation of our subconscious collective desire to own slaves. So when AI turns around and starts enslaving us, how can we be mad? It's literally mirroring us back to us. So this is our opportunity to look at ourselves Look at our choices, look at our priorities, look at what's going on in our subconscious that led to these events and circumstances and say, all right, am I going to accept the consequences of being someone who believes that I am so disempowered that I need to have slaves to do everything for me? Or am I going to, you know, choose something else because I can now that I know better? Yeah, it, I I love all of that. I almost feel like we could end right there, but I think we have a few more minutes and I, I just want to add a couple of thoughts before I give you the closing uh, segment here. Um, it's, it's like our desire to have AI as slaves has, there's an emotional and, and deep psychological component to that, but it also feeds off of this sense of that we were lied to and we don't want it. people don't like admitting that they fell for a lie the last three years is proof of that and so we've been told for many generations now that all this like say even pretty much post-world war ii that this modern technology is going to make our lives convenient and easier and give us more leisure time and there except for a very very elite percentage of people at the top which are almost immune to these cultural choices um it's it's a bald-faced lie, it, it, quite the opposite. And if, if anything, in the past 10 or 15 years, the, the most dominant um, technology is the smartphone. It, it just swallows up our entire day, including our so-called leisure time. So we spend our leisure time doing stuff sedentary and just consuming instead of creating. Mm -hmm. And we don't look at the picture, like when you said you're not judging people who are struggling, well, those people who barely can get by or can't get by. Um, like there's an entire system set up that against all natural laws and all natural logic, the system is set up to have people struggle like that. And people don't want to talk about going all the way to the top in the Federal Reserve and the central banks. And then the trickle to all the way down that we have toys that teach us um, the toy cash registers and the popular games like Monopoly. Like they, they, they just condition us from a very, very young age to accept um, the, I don't want to say capitalism because then people are going to freak out. So just a, a profit-based society, which, which, hmm. which accepting it in the same way that we accept that we inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. Like, no, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, this isn't a preordained theology or an unstoppable force of nature. These were decisions that a, a small group of humans made. And therefore, if we start making different decisions now, sure, it's going to be uncomfortable because people don't like change. Top and bottom, they don't like change. But if we keep going, we know inherently where, it's, where we're going. So if we care about ourselves, if we care about the future, if we care about the people and non-humans in our lives, it, 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 it's inherent on us to come up with ways to challenge a system that by definition is, is just anti-life. It's necrophilic. And we, to, to, before I hand it back to you, to quote what you said, we have far more power than we think we do. Part of, uh, perhaps the biggest part of the scam, whatever the scam is, you name a scam, the biggest part is first convincing us that we need them, that we can't do things on our own. And then from there, we're very, we're, we become incredibly malleable and the results are all around us. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, that that belief that we are dependent on outside sources of power uh, is made manifest again in AI, in this idea that, I mean, you've got college students having AI write their essays for them. How disempowered do you have to be? to not even try. Well, actually, there's layers to that. First of all, why are you asking a robot to write your essay when you could be putting effort into the life that you're choosing for yourself? Second of all, why are you in college? Yeah. <laughs> Third of all, why do we write? Hmm. And then, I mean, there, but you, you see how you could keep peeling back layers yeah. and layers of assumptions about how things have to be. I mean, I saw this meme. Um, it's kind of not serious, but also very serious. It, I hope I can find it. I'll do my best to explain it because it was very, like, intelligently written. It was like... um you know how there's this ongoing meme of like, get off the internet, go talk on the phone to your mom like it's 1984 or something like, or what, not 1984, but you know what I'm saying? Like um, before before cell phones, um, before the internet was everywhere. Um, basically, this meme was saying, uh, stop thinking. Having thoughts was a mistake in our evolution. We should go back to our original protozoan form um, when we were blissfully thoughtless and stuff. And it was like, it was kind of cheeky. But when you think about it, it's actually a really valuable starting place for a contemplation of like, why anything? You know, we don't have to accept anything as being necessary or obligatory. Um, the moment you accept that something has to be a certain way is the moment you you voluntarily surrender some of your own free will. And and ironically, the only way to surrender your free will is if you're a free being in the first place. So you're the only way you can like be forced to do anything is if you let yourself be forced to do that. You know, it's like it's such a mind fuck when you think about free will. Um, the point of all that, again, is I really want people to start thinking about how many ways they could be acting freely. Um, if they would just let themselves like, like, what's the worst that could happen if you do certain things you've always wanted to do? Like, let's go back to the simple example of being more fashionable at work. What's the worst that could happen? Maybe a few people will make comments or stare at you and maybe you don't like to be stared at. But take that to its logical conclusion. The Like, if someone stares at you, the worst that could happen is you'll feel uncomfortable and then that's it. Then it's over. And it's up to you to choose to not let that define you or not let that cage you into different decisions than the ones you want to make. And so, um, yeah, I think I think that's pretty much the point of this is where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> every well, And every choice has consequences. You just have to choose yes. which consequences you're willing to commit to in service of re realizing the vision and really radically claiming your desires. Yeah, and we already know what the other consequences are to stick with your job there. Yeah. We know that if we choose to not put effort into how we look and we just wear our pajamas to work, we know that that's just a slippery slope into just going through the motions mm -hmm. in all, almost all aspects of your life. So you, you've already tasted those consequences. So if someone, if you get dressed up and literally the worst thing is that someone might and it's literally might make a snarky comment or look at you like you you're the one who's free to decide i'd rather deal with the once in a blue moon snarky comment than just dragging myself in here without combing my hair or or you know wearing pajamas or whatever it might be which just brings me into a funk and and makes this job feel even more depressing so so we i think a, a great test would be for us to recognize how many consequences we're already aware of because it, it you know like listen to a stand-up comic they're always pointing out the 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 weird compromises we make in life mm. and we laugh at it because they do it in a humorous way and also because we're too nervous to say oh shit he's right i need to mm -hmm. change my life so we know those consequences so try something new because the consequences might actually be dramatically outweighed by the benefits yeah, just try. Exactly. I love that you pointed out that we already know what the consequences are of acquiescing to the grocery store system, the monetary system, the, the education system, the medical system, like all of these systems currently that we have. Um, we already know how much they suck. 
like <laughs> why not have you know why not choose a different way of life sucking you know like what <laughs> why not choose a little a different kind of struggle if we're going to struggle you know you've already accepted a certain amount of struggling into your life you might as well choose a different heart as they say yeah choose a different heart so um yeah that's that's all I really have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Allison, it's been a pleasure as always. Um, thank you for recommending the book to me. I will put a link to it in the show notes in case people are curious what we're talking about. But this isn't really about that book or about Genesis Purage. It was about the thoughts inspired by the way he lived his life and how we all benefit. Every single person benefits when we ask these crucial crucial questions about what's accepted as normal and begin to take small or large chances to create change in our personal choices. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much, Allison. As always. Thank you for having me and, and all the love to your listeners. And I appreciate them for tagging along on these wild conversational journeys that we have. Yes. Amen to that. Amen. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here. I trust you're enjoying this episode, but I wanted to take a quick break to request that you seriously consider becoming a paid subscriber to Post Woke, because Post Woke is more than this podcast, which is a weekly podcast with crucial, important conversations with crucial and important guests. Post Woke is also a Substack on which I post on a daily basis. I'm talking about written posts. And I, first and foremost, I am a writer. I have 12 books out and I have been writing for many decades. And so you are getting quality content at least once a day, all for $5 a month. And no matter what you decide, you can become a free subscriber if you choose. I ask you to please share the link and spread the word. And while you're at it, Check the show notes for information on how to order the post-woke t-shirt. It is a completely cool, kick-ass shirt, and you could show the world what your favorite podcast and Substack is. So I thank you in advance for your support. Again, I urge you to spread the word, and let's get back to the show. As we wrap up, I just want to remind you that so much of what Allison and I discussed is being orchestrated, openly orchestrated, by the powers that shouldn't be. Transhumanism, transgenderism, um, the pandemic lies, the so-called Great Reset, and AI algorithms that are designed to divide us and strip us of optimism and creativity. They want us to sit on the sideline and wallow in both negativity and the narcissism of small differences. And one of the pathways out of that is to embrace the type of commitment to creativity that we discussed and that we um, got inspired by from the Genesis P. Orridge book. And so in closing, I want to remind you that what's going on now is a spiritual war. You, there is no neutral. You must pick a side and keep your guard up.